Hey, Proof listeners, it's Julia Collin-Davison. I'm the host of America's Test Kitchen and Cook's Country, the two most watched cooking shows on TV. Now, I've been teaching people how to cook on TV for over 20 years. And one of the big reasons why I love my job is because our content is the best, hands down. Everything we do, recipes, product reviews, taste tests, it's all about rigor. So I feel confident when I show someone how to roast a chicken or bake a pie that they're getting the most thoroughly tested recipe out there. And that just feels good. If you love listening to Proof, please consider supporting our work by subscribing to an ATK digital membership. You'll get access to our archive of great recipes, recommendations on the best kitchen gear for your money, and so much more. We'd love to give you a 14-day test run, so just go to atkpodcast.com and sign up for your free trial. Thanks and happy cooking. I want to introduce you to my pal, Baxter Holmes. He's an investigative reporter for ESPN, best known for his work covering the NBA. You've probably seen him on SportsCenter. Baxter Holmes, who reported this story, joins me now. And Baxter, what themes stand out to you from the culture under Robert Sarver's ownership? One of the things that will probably always stay with me was how a very simple question, and that question was, what's it like to work there? Or what, what was it like to work there? His most it. famous story, though, is about food, specifically the NBA's obsession with peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. That story won Baxter a James Beard Award. Baxter, and he's a personal friend, is one of my favorite reporters. He's relentless in chasing answers. But there's one question unrelated to sports he's been trying to answer for some time. It's about Baxter himself and his very existence. Today on Proof from America's Test Kitchen, a story about origins, love, loss, and apple pie. I'm Kevin Pang. Stick around. High-quality ingredients are the key to making every dish delicious, even if it's as simple as a sunny sign-up egg. As a matter of fact, the simpler the dish, the better you're able to taste all the hard work that goes into something like a carton of eggs. Linnea Tracy is a poultry veterinarian at Eglin's Best, and she explains that Eglin's Best chickens are fed a special vegetarian feed, which helps make the eggs delicious, nutritious, and fresh. We're feeding a really great balanced vegetarian diet with healthy grains and a whole lot of goodies for those vitamins and minerals, as well as things like sea kelp, marigold petals, and rice bran. You know, I love eggs, but sometimes I worry about saturated fats in the yolk. It's really important that our eggs are healthy for every member of the family at breakfast time and every day. So our eggs actually have 25% less saturated fat than a generic egg. That's because we're feeding more omega-3s in the diet, which helps to displace those bad fats for the good in the yolk. I take a multivitamin every day, and I hear you also give your hens a supplement. I want to single out vitamin D. Why is it so important? Vitamin D is important in our quality because it helps our hens to lay a thick eggshell, which helps keep our eggs fresher for longer and also has a nice, satisfying crack for consumers in our kitchen. Eglin's Best Eggs have more of the good stuff and are available nationwide. To find a local retailer, visit eglinsbest.com and look for the red EB stamp on the eggshells at the store.
Ever get overwhelmed by all the different types of butter that are out there? I know the difference between salted and unsalted, but what about the ones that say 80% butterfat versus 82% butterfat? Does that 2% make a difference? I'm bringing in Cook's Illustrated Editor-in-Chief Dan Souza to explain. So it's a great question, and it actually does make a big difference. The butterfat can affect how rich, spreadable, or melty your butter is when you're cooking with it and spreading it on toast and bread and stuff like that. But it also plays a big role in baking as well, especially for something like croissants or any other laminated dessert. That higher butterfat content means that it actually ends up being more pliable. So you can roll it out more easily and get these really fine layers of dough and butter and get the flakiest results when it bakes up. Taste the difference with Plugra Premium Butter's 82% butterfat content. Visit Plugra.com for more information. Baxter Holmes brings us today's story. It's July 2015, and I'm at Hole in downtown Los Angeles with my dad, Jack Holmes. He's visiting from Madison, Wisconsin. I've taken him to some fun restaurants during the week, but I know what he really wants. So on his last night in town, we go for pie. Pie Hole is a hip spot in the Arts District portion of DTLA, featuring tons of artisan options. Mexican chocolate pie, bananas foster, Earl Grey, maple custard, chai cheesecake. But standing in front of the display case, Dad reaches a quick verdict, apple pie plus root beer and a scoop of ice cream. It's a warm night and we take a table outside. Now, by this point, my dad is not well. His t-shirt hangs off a shrunken frame and his head, hands, and arms constantly twitch. It's a byproduct of the stroke. His mind is still sharp and when he meets my girlfriend, now wife, Lindsay, he charms her with a one-liner about how she's so beautiful He needs sunglasses just to look at her. But he doesn't look at all like the strong hero I admire. A man who raised four boys, built three homes, restored two others, and for decades was routinely at the top of the sales chart at his company. He looks far gone, like he's wasting away on a ticking clock. But given how much more his health would decline, I can now say that this is the last meal I'd have with him where he looked like the man who raised me. So we're here, and he takes a bite of his apple pie, scoops on a dollop of ice cream, and eats it. He pauses, sitting still, for once, and then between bites he says, You know, if it weren't for apple pie, you wouldn't be here. This again. My dad told his sons this tale so often through the years. He said it when he was eating just about anything, but especially apple pie, as if it triggered some kind of nostalgia. My older brother, Jesse, can attest that our dad shared this story so often that he lost count. We'd gone to see Pink Floyd for his birthday. And then afterwards, we'd go into a restaurant and he'd had some apple pie and vanilla ice cream. And then the story just kind of repeated itself over again. But it was always the same story. It was just the sort of the pie trap. Our mom had made the pie and then invited him back again under the guise of more pie. This pie trap moment goes something like this. My dad was 30 years old and single when he met my mom, Nancy. She baked him a homemade apple pie and he was hooked. Soon after, they married, raised a family across three states and several homes in a relationship that spanned a quarter century. 
That's as much as I knew anyway, which I know wasn't that much. Now, my dad loved to make others laugh, so I didn't take this story seriously. My brothers didn't either. It always sounded a bit exaggerated. If it weren't for apple pie, you wouldn't be here. But as I remembered my dad sitting across the table at Pie Hole, I found myself wondering about him and my mom's beginning. Who were they before me and my siblings? How true really was this apple pie lore my siblings and I always laughed off? I've been a reporter all my life. I know about deadlines all too well. But this was one deadline that was out of my control. The people who loved me and brought me into existence would soon be gone, leaving me without any proof, beyond myself, of course, of how I came to be. That unsettling notion had left me feeling increasingly untethered from my own existence. Was I really only here because of a pie? It's September 2019. I'm in Tuscahoma, Oklahoma. I'm in the kitchen of the log cabin that my dad helped build with my mom. This cabin is deep in the woods, in the potato hills of southeastern Oklahoma. Yes, it's named that because the hills look like a line of potatoes. At this point, my mom is 66. I'd found out that she had stage 4 colon cancer on April 28, 2018. She was a year and a half into her fight against cancer. My mom's not very tall, about 4 foot 11, and the cancer made her even weaker, smaller, more frail. But here, we're making my all-time favorite dessert, no-bake chocolate oatmeal cookies. I'm filming her on my last night before flying home to Los Angeles. I'm not really helping. She's about to spoon the chocolate oatmeal into little balls on the sheet of aluminum to cool and settle. The radio is playing in the background. She's made these cookies for me a million times. And how much sugar do they have? Two cups. Two cups of sugar? Two cups of sugar. Vanilla. They're made with love, so it takes away any of the bad stuff. That's right. Out. The bad stuff won't crawl. And I hope they set up good. Hey, Mama. They smell good. Hey, Mama. Yes. I love you. I love you, Beth. Mom sent me these cookies wherever I lived. A package would arrive at college in Oklahoma or in L.A. or Boston or somewhere. In fact, these cookies were my mom's introduction to my wife, Lindsay. You were visiting your brother in New York City and your mom was there. And she opened the door with a plate of no-bake oatmeal chocolate chip cookies. The door opened to this very cute woman who made me feel tall. And as you know, I am not tall. I'm 5'3", and that's stretching my neck up. Mom often joked that she was always about to hit a growth spurt, which she never did. But she was a powerhouse, and she loved baking for others. My older brother Jesse made an interesting comparison about how my mom in the kitchen was much like she was at the piano. She could read sheet music and play beautifully, and she did throughout her life, including on Sundays at local churches wherever we lived. But really, she could just sit down and play. And it mesmerized my brother, the way her fingers moved across the keys and the way she worked the pedals. Watching her bake, she could almost do it with her eyes closed. And 
she knew exactly what the consistency of things needed to be or if something needed a little bit more of this, a little bit of extra flour, or if the dough was getting too dry. And she just did it in this way that was just, just felt very practiced, like almost the same way that she would do the piano. Like fingers just knew what they needed to do to make it perfect. It was this artistic baking intuition that would win my dad over. But he, a traveling sales manager for a power tool company, wasn't an easy sell. My dad was a kid from the Kansas City suburbs, new to the Pacific Northwest after a stint in Southern California. All he wanted was to climb the professional ranks, focusing solely on hitting and surpassing his sales figures. He also had just gotten out of a marriage and wanted to enjoy being single with no distractions, no responsibilities. When it came to food, he didn't really cook either. Cooking took time. He was mostly a fast food, frozen food aficionado. Efficient, best consumed on the go as he clocked thousands of miles, often stopping only at a McDonald's drive-thru where he always got an apple pie for dessert. My parents met at a honky-tonk joint outside Seattle. They were actually both newly divorced and my mom was a single mother of a young boy, my oldest stepbrother. She had a heartbreaking smile and brown hair that flowed like a river down her back. He had a strong chin, a barrel chest, and cobalt blue eyes. My mom had joined some friends and sat down in an empty chair that belonged to my dad. They talked, and he called her the next day. She invited him over for apple pie. He said it was his first ever homemade pie, which she couldn't believe. The next day, he came back and brought flowers this time, and she baked him another pie. Now, my dad had sworn at the time that he had no designs on entering a new relationship so quickly, much less raising a young boy. But my mom baked him that pie and it changed his tune. One year to the day after that very first pie, a justice of the peace married my parents at my mom's Boise, Idaho home on June 17th, 1979. She wore a pretty beige dress and he donned a white suit. He held her close for a photo and they looked so happy. Three years after that, my older brother Jesse was born and five years after that, I arrived. Doesn't that sound crazy? My mom asked during a phone call. It did sound a bit crazy given what happened to their relationship. For years, their marriage went along swimmingly. My dad prided himself on being the breadwinner. When he walked in the door after weeks on the road, they'd share a long hug and a kiss. They began their mornings together over a hot cup of coffee at the kitchen table, and I'd catch them holding hands on long walks. She'd cook for him and, when he was later building log homes, she'd bring him tall glasses of iced lemonade on a hot Oklahoma summer day. They seemed to me the ideal husband and wife. But around 2006, the company my dad worked for was acquired by a competitor and the layoffs came. He lost his job and his identity and their marriage fell apart. He moved to Wisconsin for work and stayed there. Anytime we talked, he'd always bring up angry feelings about everything that happened, the bitterness eating away at him as much as whatever ailment he seemed to carry. He never could move on and that always saddened me. 
By 2009, I began my reporting career at the Los Angeles Times. My brothers also moved on from Oklahoma, eventually settling in New York. We split time visiting our parents, mom in Oklahoma, dad in Wisconsin, but it was hard to escape their resentment toward each other. When I called, I mostly just tried to share stories about what I was working on or to hear stories about their youth rather than focusing on how things ended between them. It continued like this until they became ill. My dad's first stroke came in 2008, and things went south from there. But he was too stubborn to admit anything was wrong. Even when we suspected that he had another stroke years later, he often declined medical attention. But every time I saw him, he was less of himself and changed topics when we discussed his health. In May 2019, he called with news. He had been diagnosed with prostate cancer. I can fight death or I can accept it, he told me. I don't know what to do. If I fight it, then I might prolong my life. But what am I fighting for? Because this family, everything has been taken from me. What am I trying to fight this cancer for? I don't know. And then on May 18th, 2020, my mom texted, please sit down before you read. My father had died. My wife and I flew out soon after to my dad's place to see after his things. When Lindsay and I arrived, I became immediately overwhelmed, unable to think clearly and struggled to function. In traumatic situations, the brain can act as a safeguard and kind of make you feel out of sorts, a process known as disassociation. Essentially, it's the brain's way of protecting us in the same way that during extreme cold, your body will take blood from your extremities to protect vital organs. I was largely useless, stumbling around in a haze of grief, but out of curiosity, I found myself looking through my dad's fridge. When I last visited my dad, I saw the same stuff that he ate before he met my mom. Hot dog links, buns, applesauce cups, Stouffer's frozen dinners, and I noticed in the corner of his freezer a frozen Marie Callender's apple pie. When I visited again, soon after he died, I saw all the same foods, except the pie was missing. Of course, I thought, he didn't leave that behind. Then, in his closet, I found a large stack of manila envelopes containing letters written in ink and quill calligraphy on brown parchment paper. My mom wrote these letters to my dad in 1996 when I was nine. I'd never seen them before. I never even knew that she had written them. I wondered, for as bad as things had become between them, he never threw these out. Why? I ferried the letters home to LA, then hurried to call my mom because time was of the essence. The deadline was fast approaching. Dad was now gone and mom wasn't far behind. By then, cancer had begun its advance from her colon to her liver, lungs, and brain. Knowing that time was incredibly precious, I asked my mom for her apple pie recipe. Nine days later, it arrived in the mail. My mom was a trained calligrapher and created diplomas for local grade schools. But holding the envelope, I noticed the address was slanted at an odd angle. It was another sign her health seemed to be slipping away even more. After the break, a letter, a birthday, and an apple pie that forged a relationship. 
And now, back to our story. In the spring of 2021, not long after her 68th birthday, my mom died at the log cabin in Oklahoma, ending her battle with cancer. I'm grateful that nothing was left unsaid between us. By the way, I can't emphasize this point enough. Do not leave anything unsaid to people you care about, especially your parents. I grappled with losing them both less than a year apart and leaned on a quote that my mentor, who had also lost both parents in a short time span, sent me. It's from Saul Bellow, who wrote on March 13th, 1996, quote, Losing a parent is something like driving through a plate glass window. You didn't know it was there until it shattered, and then for years to come, you're picking up the pieces, down to the last splinter. I kept my parents' letters, more than two dozen, in a trunk near my desk. Days, weeks, months, and then nearly two years passed by. But day after day, I found myself unable to open even one letter because their passing was still too fresh, too raw, too painful. And for some reason, I felt that opening even one letter would mean losing more of them. Sure, I'd hear their voice again on the page, and it would be new, revealing, maybe profound, but then that voice would be gone again, and they'd be gone again, and I'd feel that too. I couldn't do it. Maybe I'd read them someday, I told myself, or never at all. All I knew was I couldn't even bring myself to open the trunk, much less look at it. Then, Thanksgiving of 2021 arrived, the first with both my parents gone. Every other article someone posted was seemingly about pies. It made me think of my parents and the family lore about their origin story. I thought of my dad a lot, too. Even though their relationship soured, the one positive memory that he'd recall in his final years was holiday gatherings, especially Thanksgiving. Through whatever tension they'd held in their later years, My mom and dad would nevertheless work together in the kitchen for hours, preparing the turkey and sides and baking a slew of pies. It seemed to be one of the few loving memories of their life together that he held on to, and he brought it up almost every time we talked. By that Thanksgiving, their absence felt heavy, and I just missed them. So I decided to finally do it. I opened the trunk, held the letters they wrote to each other in my hands. My God, my mom had put so much care into them. She even stenciled beautiful images on the envelopes. A sawed log, a pumpkin, a cedar branch. Inside, my mom included sprigs of lavender and peppermint, and all these years later, their aromas still lingered. I braced myself, then opened one, and I was taken aback. This was a side of my mom and her love for my dad that I hadn't seen before. Here's my wife, Lindsay, reading my mom's letter. December 2nd, 1996. It is after 10 p.m. and the boys are sound asleep. In the quiet of the cabin, all I can think of are our last hours together before you left this morning. My heart aches for you, and my throat swells trying without success to contain a constant flow of tears I cannot contain. I would give everything to be with you. Everything outside of you and our family seems meaningless. I'll never forget the bitter sting of longing for you and for you to be happy. 
when your arms are around me, I am whole, complete. Jack, you are my life. Tomorrow, I'll hear your voice again. These long letters were so full of love, hope, and enthusiasm, and for as bad as things became between them, my dad never threw them out. He held on to that love. It made me think about how we often talk about preserving the memories and lessons of loved ones who pass away, but in reality, we get to choose what we carry on. My parents had passed down their work ethic, their sense of always controlling what you can control. My mom had given me my name in part because of how it looked on the page and she believed it might make for a strong byline one day. But this version of my parents, this love, is what I wanted most of all to keep and carry on. I wanted to remember their beginning, not the end. I also thought about Lindsay and how I wanted our love to be just as strong. I wept reading the letters. And as I made my way through them, never reading more than one per night, I found one day to June 17th, 1996, my mom wished Dad a happy anniversary. Quote, 18 years since the night we met and 17 years of marriage. And she closed her two-page letter with, if I had to do it over again, would I still invite you for apple pie? In a heartbeat. Love forever, Nancy. Holding that letter, something changed. I remember what my dad had told me for all those years and what my mom had shared. Here was documentation, the key thing that every investigative reporter is always searching for. Here was my answer. I ran over to show my wife and I reread the letter countless times. This apple pie was the linchpin that forged their relationship. It is why I am here. Just like my dad had always told me. They were both gone, but I had my answer. On my mom's first birthday, she didn't live to see my wife and I decided to go through another letter, her last one to me. It was her apple pie recipe. To be clear, I've never made a pie before, and my overall baking experience is basically zero. So I reached out to my friend, Manuela Sanin, who used to be the executive pastry sous chef at 11 Madison Park in New York City. During her time at 11 Madison Park in 2017, it was named the world's best restaurant. So... To say that Manuela knows desserts is an understatement. But I was curious, given her expertise, what she thinks of apple pie. It was special to me and a key part of Americana and pop culture references. But in the world of desserts, was it looked down upon? Maybe considered a novice level dessert? Are you kidding? How do you get the, the crust to be crunchy, but the apples to be fully cooked? How do you get it to not be soggy at the bottom? How do you not burn the outside by also cooking the inside at the same time? Because these are all very different ingredients, right? Apples are thick and they can be crunchy, but you want them to be just cooked right. So, and you want the crust to have a nice golden color on it too. Like, did you egg wash it? Did you use butter? Did you use cream? Like, I think there is a lot of different uh, ways to also mess up apple pie. What made this all the more special is that I sent Manuela my mom's recipe in the spring of 2022, and she surprised me by making the actual pie itself at a potluck dinner soon after I sent it. Really, I had no idea. Then, at the end of dinner, she just walked to the table with it. And it was amazing. There was beautiful latticing on the pie, perfectly cooked, 
golden brown pastry, and she made it with homemade vanilla ice cream with creme fraiche and an apple bourbon drizzle. It was maybe the best apple pie, or any pie, I've had. But even she felt pressure making it. There was a pressure of like, oh my God, this is his mom's recipe. Like, what if I, what if it's not, what if it's soggy? What if, you know, what if the apples aren't cooked? What if, you know, all those things that I just said that you can mess up in a pie, all those things were in my head, like screaming the whole time. Thankfully, my wife, Lindsay, is much smarter than I am when it comes to, well, everything. For the apple pie we'd make, we both felt like we had a lot to live up to, in part because we were making it on March 11th, 2022, which would have been my mom's 69th birthday. But it was emotional for my wife too. Her grandfather, John, had died just a few months earlier. He made blueberry, peach, pecan, chocolate cream pies. And yes, he made an especially good apple pie. Your mom left out some important pieces. (laughs) Uh, The cooking time or maybe the temperature. And I called grandma and asked to go through some of grandpa's recipes to maybe fill in the blanks of what your mom left out as far as like how how long did grandpa bake it? What temperature was it baked at? And it was nice actually putting some of grandpa's notes into the process of making your mom's pie. We mixed the flour, butter, salt, and milk for the crust in our food processor. Then we rolled the dough into two softballs that rested in the fridge while we created the filling. But as Lindsay said, we didn't know how long to let the dough rest or how long to bake the pie. My mom always just knew, seemingly by feel alone, exactly how much of one ingredient to add or how long it would take to bake. Ultimately, we decided on baking it for 40 minutes. In our place in downtown LA, I stared through the oven window and watched the filling bubble and the pie golden. Our place smelled wonderful with that familiar aroma that took me back to my parents. We took the finished product and sat at the table. Steam floated skyward from the pie. I took a bite and we just sat there. Lindsay rested one hand on my shoulder and I felt overwhelmed with love and gratitude toward her for helping me through everything. To my right, I could see the trunk with my parents' letters. In front of me, in a cupboard, I could see teddy bears my mom made. On a far wall, my father's ashes stood watch. It all felt complicated because I feel like I've known apple pie my whole life. I couldn't tell you the first time I've had it, but it seems like it's always been there, just like my parents were until they weren't. This pie didn't taste exactly like one of my mom's masterpieces, the same pie that was responsible for my being here, but it was close enough that I felt close to them. I guess that means I'll have to keep trying. I wanted to hold on to that moment and to them for a beat longer before they slipped away again. All I was left with was the shattered glass of their absence. Through tears, I told my wife that my mom would have been proud of our effort. And then I went back for seconds. Thanks to Baxter Holmes for bringing us today's story, a version of which first appeared on Esquire.com in October 2022. If you like Proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. 
This episode of Proof is hosted by me, Kevin Pang, and the podcast is made by the following cast of characters. I'm Yumi Araki, the managing producer. I'm executive producer, Caitlin Kelleher. I'm supervising producer, Caroline Rickert. I'm Terrence Johnson, and I'm the associate producer. I'm Alex Curran Cardarelli, and I'm also an associate producer. I'm Bridget Lancaster, creator and the founding host and producer. Audio services are provided by Ultraviolet Audio with sound design supervision by Matt Boynton. Scoring, mixing, and sound design by Anya Gzeshik. And additional engineering by Justin Garish. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds Composer Theme Music. Additional music by Kyle Forster and Jordan Pearson. Finn Margolis. Is our director of host production, and our director of production is Diane Knox. Fact checking and additional research by Angela Yang. Special thanks to Jesse Holmes, Baxter's wife Lindsay, and to Manuela Sanin for being a part of this episode. And both Baxter and I want to give a special shout out to Steve Padilla, our writing coach and mentor. Thanks, Steve, for everything. Jack Bishop is the chief creative officer, and Dan Surratt is America's Test Kitchen's CEO. Thanks to our sponsors, Eglin's Best, Plugra Premium Butter, and the Augusta Scoffier School of Culinary Arts. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. <laughs>